0: Will you please turn in your Bibles to First Peter chapter 5, First Peter chapter 5. We have some Bibles for everybody, so these brothers are coming to the front, they're going to make their way to the back, and if you need a Bible, just get their attention and they'll get one of those to you. It's marked at First Peter 5. As we continue and just about conclude our many months series in the five chapters of the book, first letter written by the Apostle Peter. Well, having returned just uh, two weeks ago from a ministry trip overseas, it gave me occasion to compare that trip to others that I've had the privilege to take over the last few years. As I was thinking about those various trips, it brought to mind how careless I've been from time to time, putting myself, if not in danger, at least in an unnecessarily vulnerable position. For instance, more than once I've wandered off the script that was given to me by my hosts. In Mexico several years ago during a break from installing ductwork in a church there, yes, I helped install ductwork in a, in a church, and we have the pictures to prove that. But during a break on that work I decided to take a walk. As I walked I realized that there were people staring at me and those stares reminded me that I was the only caucasian in the town but I kept walking As I went a few more blocks and into the town near the church I noticed military looking vehicles and military personnel on the streets And then as I looked up at the buildings I saw at the top several military personnel who were perched there with rifles drawn Now, the good news is they were not pointed at me, but it dawned on me that it might not be the best idea for me to be wandering around town, and so I went back. When I visited uh, India in 2010 and then Manila about 22 months ago, I was given explicit instructions to not accept help from anyone and simply go through the official channels for checking luggage, getting your transportation, and so on. All went according to plan on both those occasions, because in India I had a pastor friend who was with me, and I was picked up at the airport by my host in Manila. But last year, December of last year, when I went to China, I was on my own getting a cab at the Beijing airport to take to my hotel for that first night. I'd been given an email that I had printed with instructions in Mandarin to show to the cab driver, and that certainly helped. But as I got off the plane, a bit groggy after 13-hour flight, I got my bag from the carousel, I went to the ground transportation area to hail a cab, and the only thing I wanted to do was get to the hotel and sleep. Now if I had been given the warning about only using official channels on that particular trip, I didn't uh, remember it. And I was immediately approached by a semi-official looking guy who asked me in broken English if I needed a ride. I instinctively said yes. He took my bag, motioned for me to follow, and I did. We walked past a number of rows of of taxis. And then he led me to an area of the airport that was somewhat off the beaten path, but in fairly short order, we were in an area with his car, and on the top of his car, it had kind of a taxi-looking thing on the top. And importantly, there were other cars around that looked similar and at least looked semi-official. But by the time I got in the cab, my grogginess had started to wear off, and it dawned on me that I had no idea who this guy was or where he might take me. And I began to think of a number of scenarios. All of them were bad. He was on his cell phone talking in Chinese. And I'm thinking, what if he's talking to his partners in crime? And soon we'll turn into a dark part of Beijing where his friends are waiting because he has a live one. For now, at least. And then they robbed the rich American, because all Americans are rich. And so I determined, if he makes a turn into a dark area, then I'll take action. And then I remembered I had no idea what action I would take. (laughs) So I asked him, how long to the hotel? He said 30 minutes. I asked whether it was straight ahead on the road we were on. And he looked at me with a look that I interpreted as, why are you asking me this? But he affirmed that, yes, indeed, it is straight ahead. So I knew if he turned, I'd have to initiate my action plan. But then I remembered again that I didn't have an action plan. Well, the good news is I'm here to tell about it. And indeed, the hotel was 30 minutes up the road from the airport, and there were no turns down dark streets in Beijing with thugs waiting to rob me. I did pay triple the amount that you're supposed to pay for that taxi ride, but I was happy to pay and be safely at the hotel and to be able to get some sleep. Now, why do I tell you all of that? One of the cardinal rules of safety is to be aware of your surroundings. But there are times when we can be unaware, perhaps because we're either naive or we're distracted or we're tired. Sometimes that lack of awareness can be dangerous. And God tells us that a lack of full awareness and readiness is potentially fatal for the Christian. Notice what chapter 5 and verse 8 says. Be alert and of sober mind. Now these two commands, to be alert and of sober mind, follow the command in verse 6 that we saw last week. And in verse 6 it says to humble yourselves under God's mighty hand. And we saw then the first two major points from this passage that goes from verse 6 through verse 11. And we have those kind of faded out at the top of your outline that's inserted in your program. If you don't have that, take a look at that. In fact, we so faded it out that you you can't read it. But if you were with us last week, you know that we had two of the four major points there that we covered. And the first is that we have very good reasons to humble ourselves before God. And those reasons are that God is sovereign and that God is good. And then the second point was that God has given us a simple, though not easy way to humble ourselves before Him. Verse 7 says, cast all your anxiety on Him. This morning we're going to continue looking at the instruction in verse 6 to humble ourselves before God and see what else we're instructed regarding from verses 8 through 11 in that vein. But first, let's humble ourselves before God in dependent prayer, asking Him to help us. Father, we thank You that again You have given us the great privilege of gathering as Your people to sing praise to You and now to learn of You from Your Word. Lord, grant us clarity of thought. Grant us open hearts to receive what you have said to us in your word. May we be changed by it, and may we be more like Jesus and thereby better equipped to bring glory to your name. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now you have that outline that's inserted in your program, and we want to look at the third and fourth points that are in this passage today. The third one is is this. Not only do we have good reasons to humble ourselves before God, and God's given us a simple way to do that, but now we have full ability to humble ourselves before God, full ability to do that. Verse 8 says, be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him standing firm in the faith because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of suffering. Now when we say in the outline that we have full ability to humble ourselves before God, that is, we can submit ourselves to the sovereign will of God even in adverse circumstances. Verse 6 is telling us that as we saw last week. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. And now we're going to make the point from these verses that we can indeed do that. We can indeed place ourselves under, submit ourselves to the sovereign will of God, even when our situation is difficult. The temptation for all of us, when in difficulty, is to rebel against God's will rather than submitting ourselves. But this passage is teaching that we can indeed carry out this command to humble, submit ourselves before God if we know the danger that might keep us from doing that and prepare ourselves for it. So that's why we say in the outline that we have to be fully prepared from verse 8. We, can have, we have full ability to humble ourselves and that means, first of all, that we can be fully prepared to do that. Verse 8, again, be alert and of sound mind. It's saying to be sober And to be alert or watchful. Now, for some reason, unknown to me, the NIV, which we like and use at the church here uh, in our public preaching and teaching, but for some reason it reverses those two from what it is in the original. And And the order is important because the second is dependent on the first. So it should be be of sober mind and alert or watchful. The first command, of, to be of sober mind and a clear head, is necessary in order to be watchful and alert. The truth is, if you don't have a clear mind, you won't have the ability to watch. And if you don't have a clear mind about the danger, you won't have the motivation to watch. And so you need this clear mind in order to be able, to be alert, and to watch. You also need a clear mind so that you understand, you're aware of your surroundings, so you know the necessity of being watchful, of being alert. So think of it this way. One who is inebriated and therefore not of clear mind can get into a car, turn over the ignition, drive away, and because of the lack of sobriety, that person can fail to realize the danger that they and others are in. Because, on the one hand, they don't have the ability to be alert in that impaired condition. And they don't care about being alert because it's also made them unaware of the danger. And so we have to have a sober mind, a clear mind, a clear head. In order to be able to be alert and watchful. And in order for us to be motivated because we understand the danger. Peter himself, who wrote this, had to learn this very important lesson. You remember some of the stories with regard to Peter during Jesus' earthly ministry. Peter was one of his closest associates, but there were times when Peter was very dull of understanding. And the Bible tells us this in Matthew chapter 26, that Jesus took Peter and two others, and he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Jesus returned and he found them sleeping. And Jesus said, couldn't you keep watch with me for one hour? And he asked that directly of Peter. There were others there, but he focused this on Peter. And Peter apparently learned that lesson. And Jesus said, watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. And so Peter, by this point now, as he writes this letter has learned this lesson. He's saying this, make no mistake, there's spiritual danger for you. So think clearly about the battle that you're in and the enemy that you face, and then in turn, having done that, be watchful for signs of danger. As we find ourselves in unwanted circumstances, friends, we will be tempted to drift in what we believe, to drift in our faith. And so be aware of this, as Peter is telling us. Be aware that there's someone who wants to use your circumstances to harm you spiritually. Wants to use your adverse circumstances in particular, but as we'll see, not just adverse circumstances, even blessings to affect you adversely spiritually. And so recognizing that danger, watch for signs of that encroaching upon your heart, is what Peter's telling us. And there's good reason for us to be prepared this way, to be of sober mind and to be alert. Here's what verse 8 says. Be alert, be of sober mind and alert, it's the way it should be, because your enemy the devil prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Now I said because. That's not in the original. But the... But the reason given, in fact, in some manuscripts, the word because actually has been added. Because the reason for which we need to be of sober mind and to be watchful and alert is because of this. You've got an enemy who is dangerous and is playing for keeps. So we must be prepared for good reason. Because your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And when it says devour, it's literally this. Looking for someone to drink down to really obliterate. Now, when verse 8 says you have this enemy, <clears throat> the devil, the name of the devil in Scripture is Satan. And Satan means adversary. And therefore, Peter says in verse 8, he's our, our enemy. This devil spoken of here is none other than Satan, the adversary and thus our enemy. And the word that's translated devil in verse 8 is diabolos. We get diabolical from it. And the diabolical goal that he desires for one who professes faith in Jesus is for that person to deny it either by his or her lips or their lives or both. The first readers of this letter would have understood the seriousness of this image now that that Peter is giving, you've got, this, you've got this enemy, you've got this adversary. He is diabolos. He has a diabolical end in mind for you, so much so that he can be compared to a roaring lion seeking to drink you down whole. They would have understood that. Perhaps some of them had seen the sport of killing Christians by exposing them to wild beasts. And so then when they read this, they understand the grave danger and the necessity of being sober-minded and watchful. Now, as we read something like that in 2013 America, all of this talk of lions and persecution and potentially denying the faith, it it all can, if we're not very careful, place all of this outside of our own experience so that we think that the warning here does not apply to us. I mean, after all, how am I going to be persecuted in a way like that? How am I going to be physically taken like that? And in all likelihood, that's not going to happen to anyone here given the circumstances in which we live. But please understand this, friends. The adversity that our enemy uses can be of all varieties. And it's not just overt persecution. The truth is any circumstance can potentially lead us away from belief, and that's what's at stake here. Remember, what verse 9 is saying is this, that you're going to resist him and you're going to stand firm in the faith. And you have heard me say many times that the word that's translated faith in your New Testament is the same word for belief. So standing firm in what you believe rather than giving in to the diabolical goal that your adversary has for you, which is to deny what you believe, either with your lips or with your lives, or both. And any circumstance can potentially lead us away from belief in what we saw last week, in the goodness of God, or in the sovereignty of God, or both. And these circumstances can take all manner of forms. Physical problems, financial problems, interpersonal problems at home, between husband and wife between parent and child, at work, at church. Usually it's problems that we allow to eat away at what we believe. But the circumstance that pulls us away may even be a desirable circumstance. It may even be a good thing, believe it or not. Blessing may be the occasion for leading us away from belief in reliance on the Lord and His sovereignty. Now, how do, why do I say that? Well, take a passage like we find in the first part of your Bible, fifth book of your Bible, Deuteronomy. And as God prepares His people to enter into the land that He had promised them, He gives them instructions before they go in and warnings about the possibility of losing their belief. And He says this to them, When you have eaten and are satisfied, praise the Lord your God for the good land He has given you. Be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God failing to observe his commands, his laws, and his decrees that I'm giving you this day. Otherwise, when you eat and are satisfied, when you build fine houses and you settle down, and when your herds and flocks grow large and your silver and gold increase, and all you have is multiplied, then your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. trying to have you to see, dear friends, that this warning... From God's servant Peter, to be of sober mind and to be watchful because your adversary seeks to devour you, does not only apply to the extreme circumstances that the first century church found themselves in, or other brothers and sisters find themselves in today in other parts of the world. Satan is prowling everywhere, looking to devour every believer, and using every opportunity, even good circumstances to whittle away at what it is we believe. And so we can begin to doubt God's sovereignty and our dependence on Him when we are blessed in good circumstances. Or in adversity, we doubt His goodness. And hear this. Doubt is always the road to denial. Doubt does not always lead to denial. But you don't deny until you have first doubted. The road to denial always has on it doubt about God's sovereignty and about God's goodness. And so here, Peter is dealing with this interplay, sometimes mysterious interplay in Scripture, between the activity of our good and sovereign God and then the activity of the adversary, Satan. And I say this because in verse 8, he mentions diabolos, the the devil, our adversary, who seeks to devour us. But remember, all of this goes back to chapter 4 and verse 17, where the Bible says that God is, is judging the world prior to restoring the world. And verse 17 says, it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. You all remember that? So the circumstances that they find themselves in, God is using to to purify them, to discipline them. God is doing that. And yet now in verse 8, we have this figure Satan coming into into the situation. So how how do those two things fit together? How is it that God on the one hand is orchestrating these circumstances, and yet the devil is a major player for his own ends. Here's how it works scripturally. God is the one who sovereignly allows every circumstance that occurs in life, good, bad, and ugly, to come. God is the one. And as God allows those things to happen, he has a good end at all times for his people. And Satan has another goal in mind. Satan seeks to use those circumstances that our sovereign God allows for his malevolent ends. So you might put it this way. The devil brings what God sends. God sends it. But sometimes the devil is the emissary who brings it. You say, you mean, God uses the devil? Yep. Martin Luther was right when he said, even the devil is God's devil. We're going to talk in just a bit. I'm going to spend a good bit of time making sure that this congregation understands that there is no one and there is no thing that is more powerful than our God. There is no being in the universe that has equal power, let alone more power, than our God. And that includes Satan himself. That includes the devil. So this roar of the lion, then, understood by these first century believers because they may have seen, actually, physical lions do their work on, on Christian faithful Christians, This roar of the lion is designed to scare and to scatter the the flock, the sheep. Remember, verses 1 through 5 are all about the good shepherd and the under-shepherds and how they are to care for the sheep. And now we have the roar of the lion that would scatter any flock of sheep, and that's what Satan's roar is designed to do to God's people. But there's a second thing that we're taught in this passage. We can... We have the ability the full ability to humble ourselves before God, even in whatever circumstances our sovereign God places us, and even with Satan's malevolent designs. We can be fully prepared, and then notice, we can be fully engaged, fully engaged. Verse 9, resist him, standing firm in the faith because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. Resist him. You know, dear friends, too often we give the devil much more than his due. I've heard many times over the years that one of Satan's chief strategies is to convince people that he does not exist. And so just ignore him, don't worry about him, don't be alert. And, and, and that's certainly uh, true. Certainly we must be aware and alert that we have a real enemy, Allah verse 8. But there's another dangerous strategy of Satan that follows from the awareness that indeed he is a clear and present danger, and that is this. It's to believe that we are somehow powerless before him. And the Bible teaches precisely the opposite for God's people. Please understand, there is no dualism in Scripture. There are so many christian people who in effect believe there are two gods one good god one bad god and they're fighting it out and we'll see who wins and we hope our god wins in the good guys with the white hats win in the end and so you have these equal and opposing powers one benevolent the other malevolent many see satan as god's evil twin and both god and satan are locked in a life and death struggle for supremacy you know we get it backwards we say things like resist temptation and flee from the devil but the Bible says resist the devil and flee temptation now Peter does not say here to flee we're going to see in a bit that our brother James actually has almost these same words he says resist the devil and he will flee from you Peter doesn't add that, probably because the form of attack he knows will remain, will remain for a period of time. So he doesn't want to confuse that. But here we are told in unmistakable terms that we have the ability to resist Satan. Satan's objective in his attack cannot succeed, cannot succeed if we resist by trusting the Lord in those circumstances. If we resist by humbling ourselves, by submitting ourselves, by entrusting ourselves to the Lord in our circumstances, whatever they be. Now again, the Bible's replete with examples of statements about how ferocious our enemy is. David would often talk about his enemies as As lions who want to tear him apart. Psalm 7, he says, O Lord my God, I take refuge in you. Save and deliver me from all who pursue me, or they will tear me like a lion and rip me to pieces. And so Satan's compared to this roaring lion. That's his objective indeed. But as Martin Luther said, even the devil is God's devil. And I'd like to take some time to make sure you understand that very clearly. And understand that Jesus has defeated Satan. And therefore, you can resist. Now, how do I know this? Well, (laughs) you know, you've got this uh, story of Job. You all remember the story of Job. And there are 42 chapters in the story of Job. But the opening two chapters set the scene for the entire rest of the story of Job and all that he lost and what was ultimately restored to him and his confusion and his friends' ill-conceived counsel to him in between. But those opening two chapters are crucial because they set the scene for everything that's happening and they tell us why it's happening. And importantly, Job doesn't know what we read in chapters 1 and 2 when he's going through all of that. He doesn't know why it's happening, but we're told. And in chapter 2 of Job, it says this, Satan came to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? Now, by the way, does the Lord know where Satan has come from? You know, it's like he will say to Adam in the garden, Adam, where are you? (laughs) He knows precisely where he is. Satan answered the Lord from roaming through the earth and going back and forth in it. And then Satan says this to to God, Stretch out your hand and strike Job's flesh and bones, and he will surely curse you to your face. Now, you just stop and think about what's going on here. (laughs) Satan is presenting himself before God. And Satan is saying, God, you do this. Now, he knows he's going to be the one who brings it. But he knows it can't be brought unless the Lord sends it. And so he says, God, stretch out your hands, strike Job's flesh and bones, he'll surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, very well then, he is in your hands, but you must spare his life. Now, do you all see who's given the rules here? Do you all see who is in charge here? Obviously, it is God. Satan presents himself. He must secure permission for what he does. So how can someone like Kenneth Copeland... Yikes. I'll give you a quote in a minute. But let me just stop and say, Dear friends, forgive the grammar, but there ain't nothing on the Trinity Broadcasting Network that you need to edify your soul. If you're watching these false teachers who believe that Satan is equal to God. And in fact, Satan is in some cases more powerful than God. It is heretical of the first order. Kenneth Copeland said, quote, God is on the outside looking in. He doesn't have any legal entree into the earth. The thing don't belong to him. He says, you see how sassy the devil was in the presence of God in the book of Job? Do you all see how sassy the devil was in the presence of God in the book of Job? But Kenneth Copeland does. God said, where have you been? Wasn't any of God's business. Satan didn't even have to answer him if he didn't want to. God didn't argue with him a bit. You see, this is the position that God's been in. I'm continuing to quote. You might say, well, if God's been running things, He's doing a lousy job of it. He hasn't been running them. Except from time to time, when He gets a little bit of a chance. That's a quote. That's the God, little g, that Kenneth Copeland and the prosperity preachers believe in. And so why so much attention on Satan? When in the Bible, frankly, he's a bit player. If you look at your New Testament and Jesus in coming as the promised Messiah and showing that the kingdom of God is at hand, he does these miraculous wonders to show that he has power over everything, including Satan and all of his minions. And then you read the rest of your New Testament. And how much do you read about Satan in your New Testament? Friends, there are only a handful of passages. And yet, if you were to watch the Trinity Broadcasting Network, heaven forbid, you would think that there's as much about him as there is about God. Why so much attention on Satan? Here's why. The more God is diminished in the teaching of any ministry... The more Satan becomes prominent. After all, we see a more of Satan than of God in the world. So, in the absence of teaching on the character and the plan and the sovereignty and the supremacy of God, it follows that Satan becomes all the more scary. And the more you can scare people, the more dependent they become. It's true of government, it's true of business. You need this. What you don't know might hurt you. You need this product. You've got to have this. You might die if you don't get this product. For a limited time only. (laughs) It's true in government. It's true in business. Hear this. It's true of charlatans who are hawking books and CDs and conferences. And so who is this Satan and how does God control this Satan? Well, it goes back to the garden. Prior to the garden, the anointed cherub, as the prophet Ezekiel called him, Isaiah says he's the morning star who had fallen. And then in the garden, he tempts the man and the woman. They succumb. And then this God who is in control of Satan pronounces punishment upon him. And in Genesis chapter 3, the Lord God said to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers, He will crush your head. That's the prediction of Almighty God. That there is going to be one who is going to come into the human race, whose birth we celebrate this month, who is going to crush the head of the serpent. The crushing of Satan would come on the cross, but the cross would only be effective if Jesus succeeded where Adam failed. Adam was tempted, he failed. And one of the first things you read about Jesus in his earthly ministry is Satan tempting Jesus, hoping that he will fail as well. And that's why you read in Matthew chapter 4. Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. All right? You all all reading that carefully? (laughs) He's led into the desert for a purpose to be tempted by the devil. Led by who? God the Spirit. And the devil tempts him, tempts him with three different things. And in each one of those things, Jesus answers in similar fashion, it is written, man does not live on bread alone. But on every word that comes from the mouth of God, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. It is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And so Jesus repulsed the attack of Satan and defeated him. Jesus succeeded where Adam had had failed. Later, Jesus would say in the words of one commentator that his casting out of demons showed that he had bound the, the, quote, strong man of the house and could therefore plunder his house, delivering those who were his slaves. Notice Jesus' words in Luke chapter 11. If I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come to you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own house, his possessions are safe. But when someone stronger, thanks be to God, someone stronger attacks and overpowers him, he takes away the armor in which the man trusted, and he divides up the spoils. As Jesus approached the hour of his triumph, that to the world looked like a defeat on the cross, but he knows it's going to be the ultimate hour of triumph. So he approaches that just before the night prior to his crucifixion. Jesus said this in John chapter 12. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. But I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. On the cross, I will crush his head. I will defeat Satan. And so what does Satan do now? The Bible tells us that 2 Corinthians 11, he masquerades as an angel of light. So do not be naive, friends. Be of sober mind. Be alert. But understand that he is a defeated foe. And that's why Paul could end his marvelous letter of 16 chapters to the Christians at the Church of Rome and say this God will soon crush Satan under your feet. Jesus has crushed the head of the serpent. There is coming a time when he will be crushed under the feet of Jesus' servants. That's why James then could say, Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. So much for two equal gods. So much for the power of Satan. That's why the Bible, when it does speak in the New Testament, after the earthly ministry of Jesus about spiritual warfare, it simply tells you to take up the weapons you have and you will be victorious. And that's why Ephesians 6 says, Take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Is that not what Jesus did? It is written with each temptation. This is what the Word of God says. It is written. So you too take that up and you can extinguish all of the flaming arrows of the evil one. And therefore, because of Jesus' victory over Satan, crushing the head of the serpent, you have now this ability to fully resist him, to be fully prepared, to be fully engaged. And that's why the Bible can give us promises like 1 Corinthians 10. No temptation has seized you Accept what is common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear, but when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. Peter had this ability. There were times where Peter succumbed to temptation as I do, as you do. But Peter had this ability. You remember that Peter was called Simon Peter, sometimes called Simon. Notice what Jesus said to him in Luke 22. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. Satan has asked. Satan has asked for permission. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. Every prayer that Jesus prays, every prayer that Jesus prays is fulfilled by the Father. If Jesus prays that something be done for you, it will be done. If Jesus prays that something not be done to you, it will not be done. And Peter, I have prayed for you that your faith will not fail. What that means is your faith will not fail. Despite what Satan has in mind. Satan can only do what God Almighty allows him to do. And so you resist the devil. And verse 9 tells us then, you stand firm in what you believe. Because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. What's that about? You should resist the devil. You should stand firm in what you believe then believing in the goodness and the sovereignty of God, knowing that this is a defeated enemy and therefore can be resisted and he will flee from you. But it then says, because, here's why you should do that, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kinds of things. How is that a motivation? Here's how. You see, what God is doing is he is proving, he is showing, he is testing when he allows these adverse circumstances to come into our lives. He is testing what we believe and therefore proving who are really believers. And so here's why you should do this. Because this is what happens with believers. God does this with believers. He strengthens their faith, their belief, and He proves, He shows their faith and their belief by allowing these circumstances into their lives. So understand, that's what God is doing here. And so we have full ability to humble ourselves before God, submit ourselves to whatever is going on in our lives, despite Satan's malevolent designs. And then lastly, in your outline, we have a glorious promise when we humble ourselves before God. When we do this in our circumstances, this is what God promises in verse 10 and the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ. After you have suffered a little while will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. So much there and so little time. This is God of all grace. You see, friends, his grace is not just shown in what is said in verse 10, that he'll restore you and cause you to stand firm and be steadfast. It's certainly that. But he's the God of all grace. Everything he does in the lives of his people is a matter of his grace. And so even the circumstance, even the adversity is a matter of his grace. And this God of all grace, then, will accomplish his purpose, and he will thwart the purpose of the enemy in your life. Why? Because verse ten says, He called you. Many of you know that calling is a synonym in Scripture for salvation. God calls us out of the world into Himself. And so God has has chosen you and, and called you. Famously in Romans Chapter 8, those he predestined, he also, do you remember? He called. And those he called, he justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. And so he has predestined the outcome. And in time, he has called you to that outcome, to his eternal glory in Christ. And so the promise then is, you will make it to the end. But in the meantime, your suffering will be, it says in the NIV, for a little while. But it doesn't have the word while there. It literally says this, after you have suffered a little. And so the question is, is it the degree of the suffering? Is it a little suffering? Or is the suffering for a relatively little bit of time? And the answer is both of those. Our suffering is relatively brief and our suffering is relatively light. And that's why I say in your outline, our suffering will be light and brief. The promise of God. And that reminds some of you of another passage in Scripture, doesn't it? Second Corinthians 4.17, our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Dear friend, I know that there are times where it does not seem light. I know that there are times where it seems like it will not end. But Almighty God promises, I will sustain you. And I will see you through it. And I will see you through to the end that I have appointed for for you. And the question for you is, do you believe that? Will you stand firm in the faith, in your belief about God's sovereignty, His ability to see you through, and His goodness, His willingness to see you through? So we have this promise that our suffering will be light and brief. And then the last part of verse 10 is telling us He'll restore you, make you strong, firm, and steadfast. And that's saying our God will see us through. And what's the end of all of that then? Verse 11 gives you the end, the purpose for all things, which is the glory of God. And so you have this doxology, this praise to God as a result of all of this, the sovereign and good God, to Him be the power forever and ever. Amen. That purpose is achieved when through the circumstances of life that Satan seeks to capitalize on as your enemy, as your adversary, and use them for his malevolent purposes. But as in those you believe God and you believe that he is good and you believe that he is sovereign. then his purpose for bringing glory to himself will be achieved. So what does that mean for us then? These two weeks taken together. Last week and now this one. I have the take home truth for you in your outline. The Christian way up. The Christian way to be restored is always down. It is always humbling ourselves before God. It is always submitting ourselves to God. Now, we're going to conclude. But as we do, friend, do you understand that what we're talking about here, what the Bible is saying here, is beyond your natural ability. This requires supernatural ability. We talk about your ability to resist Satan you have that if you're, if you're a believer but that's the if if you are a child of God but if you are you have his spirit and you have all of these promises but I want to make sure before we end that everyone here has an opportunity to become a child of God to be adopted into God's family in this sacred moment and so what do you do you realize that you're a sinner you realize that your tendency and my tendency is to go our own way and to not follow God's way and to take matters into our own hands and usurp the authority that belongs to God, but recognize that Jesus came to defeat Satan, to defeat the power of sin, to release the captives from the clutches of the evil one. He did that on the cross. He was able to do that on the cross because his life on earth was absolutely perfect. He succeeded where Adam failed, and therefore you repent. Lord, I see that I've been going my own way. I now need to follow you. And that means giving you my life. You receive Jesus Christ into your life. How do you do that? You ask him. No magical incantation, no particular formula. You, from your heart, you ask God, Lord, I am a sinner. Jesus is the savior of my sin. Deliver me. I give you my life. I want to follow you. Let's bow together. Father, we thank you again for the opportunity to see in your word truths that we would know nothing about if you did not reveal them in your word, if you did not tell us the -the behind-the-scenes battle that takes place. The Lord, thank you that you have taught us this so that we know and are aware and can be watchful. We thank you most of all that Jesus has crushed the head of the serpent. Therefore, we can live free of his power. And therefore, we can resist him and he will flee from us. Lord, help us to be people then who magnify the Savior, the victorious one. And Lord, help us thereby to minimize, as your word does, to minimize the adversary. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.